You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, everybody, and welcome a day. It's so great to be with you, no matter where you are today, no matter whenever that you are. We're so excited to have you, many of you, right back here in our facility next week as we reopen for in-person services. Of course, you need to register for that, as you've likely heard. But not only am I excited to see many of you next week, but we're also excited to have this very special guest with us next Sunday, Pastor Jim LaFoom, supposed to be here last Sunday, as you may have heard, he had to cancel, or reschedule that is, due to that big winter storm that we all lived through. Uh, Jim, if you don't know who he is, he comes here annually, he's a senior leader in the Every Nation family of churches, he travels globally, uh, Mosaic's a part of that, the, the family called Every Nation. Uh, he's got a tremendous prophetic gift, he's a tremendous Bible teacher, as you'll hear, and we're really excited to have him here with us in person at 9 and 11 and of course at 1 and 6 and all that. But uh, today, here we go. Welcome to week four of our series called What About Where we are taking a look at some emotional, some cultural, and some rational reasons for faith in God. Or to put it another way, we're looking at and for some clues for the existence of God. And the reason we're doing this is because when it comes to the most important things in your life today, the most important things right now, the things that determine actually the course of your life, the things around which you make your most important decisions, you don't decide on those things, those most important things through the scientific method or through empirically based science alone. No, when it comes to the most important things, things like love, Justice, right and wrong, friendship, mercy. You can't prove those things exist through the instrument of science, but that doesn't mean things like love aren't very real. And the same is true with God. You can't prove God exists in a laboratory in the same way that you would prove like 17 different species of insects live in the trees behind your house or apartment complex or whatever. But that doesn't mean there isn't reasonable evidence that can help us make an informed decision about God. So let me encourage you this way when it comes to consideration of the existence of God. I think it's helpful to avoid two ditches. First, avoid the ditch of just blind faith alone where it doesn't matter what the evidence is, you're just gonna believe whatever you believe. The other ditch would be to avoid saying, well, if I can't empirically prove the existence of God, then I'm not gonna believe at all, anything, anyway, because that would be a pretty big risk, wouldn't it? I think it would, to to categorically dismiss the existence of a God because you can't see him through a telescope or a microscope. You don't, we don't do that to things like justice, love, mercy, friendship. No, to see those things, things that science can't prove or disprove either way, then we need, therefore, other time-honored, tested means of discovery. Instruments like logic, reason, history, philosophy, and maybe, like we're going to see today, through the honest examination of a cultural clue I think can help point us toward the existence of God, which is this. It's the subject 
of who we are. The subject of identity, identity, that's what we're going to be talking about today. The subject of identity. Now, if, if you've been here before, you may have heard me share a bit of what you're about to hear. But either way, if you're new and you're just joining us or you've been here for a while, I think this is not only a crucial subject to keep coming back to because, as you'll see, it affects so much of our everyday lives, our everyday behavior, how we feel about ourselves, but also seen through a certain lens, the subject of identity can also be a huge clue to the existence of God and specifically, as we'll see today, A significant argument, if you will, for specifically Christian faith in God. And so here's what I mean by that. Here's our our clue for why Christian faith is God is something, and Christian faith in God is something that not only do I think is true, but this clue is why I think that even if you don't believe in God, in Christianity, this is why I think you should at least want Christianity to be true. Here it is. What we're talking about today. Christianity provides a non-oppressive basis for identity formation. Christianity provides a non-oppressive basis for identity formation. And in a world that's full of hate and anger and division, anxiety and fear, I think that this is something that you, me, we should talk about. And so we are for a bit today. So let me try to ask and answer three questions. Here we go. Number one, what is, what is identity formation? Number two, how are we shaped by the formation options we see? And third, how is Christian identity formation distinct? What is identity formation? How does that shape us? And third, how is the Christian concept of identity different. All right, here we go. Number one, let's ask, try to answer what is identity formation. Now there's a lot that's been written on this. You may know that. And while what you're about to hear could be critiqued a bit for being oversimplified a bit, I'm going to try to do my best to capture the essence of this conversation. Here we go. What is identity formation? Well, put simply, this is my definition. Identity formation is the process or processes that shape how we determine our self-worth. The process or processes that shape how we determine our self-worth. Basically, sociologists tell us there are two main ways that cultures try to help you answer those questions of who you are, how you feel about yourself. And before I tell you what those two ways, two options are, allow me for a moment to problematize, to try to illustrate why I think this conversation matters so much. I, that is Morgan, Morgan Stevens, I am a pastor, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I've also been a little league baseball coach, I've been a volunteer in a mentor program, I'm a son to my parents, I am also, as you can see, I'm white, Uh, I'm male, I'm also an American citizen, as you might guess. Now, am I only a bunch of disconnected roles depending on whatever room I walk into? Am I I only just a bunch of masks across all of my relationships? Am I only like this this grab bag of some genetic factors mixed in with some social constructs, you know? Or is there something else, perhaps something deeper than all of that, that is my core identity? Something that is identical, that is the same at the core of who I am that helps me wherever I go. So I'll ask you the same question. What makes you identical across all the roles that you play in life? What identifies you deepest no matter where you go? Now the answer to that question would be your core identity. 
Now again, our identities are layered for sure, and I'd argue on purpose by God. And we do play distinct roles, of course, but of course, but our core identity, the center of who we are, no matter where we are, sociologists tell us that that thing comes a lot from how we have been shaped by the type of culture in which we grew up. So how you answer the questions of who you are, how you feel about yourself, where you get your worth, they in large part come from whether you answer those questions from either a traditional culture perspective or our modern cultural perspective. I want to look at each of these briefly. First, traditional culture perspective goes like this. We tell you who you are. We tell you who you are. So for all of human history, you probably know this, up until very recently, your identity was more or less assigned to you. Uh, And your sense of self-worth came from doing well at fitting in well to a predetermined social structure. You gave up who you are, who you were, for the sake of the community. You gain a sense of worth by how well you are able to sacrifice for others. You are, in other words, your duties, your, your duties, your family, your tribe, your nation, your community told you who you were. And at certain points, this can be, has been extremely helpful because on a certain level, traditional cultural formation removes anxiety. You don't have to go looking for an identity yourself. For example, Ralph Ellison, the, the brilliant African-American writer, he, he grappled with these questions as a, as a person of color who had, been, who had been marginalized in the U.S. And so he wrote a series of stories with this wonderful fictional pastor, the Reverend Hickman. Reverend Hickman. And so to the questions, who am I? Where does my worth come from? The Reverend Hickman put it like this in a novel called Juneteenth. Quote, We know who we are by the way we talk, walk. We know who we are by the way we talk. We know who we are by the way we sing. We know who we are by the way we dance. We know who we are by the way we praise the Lord on high. Now he's giving, if you'll notice, a traditional cultural answer. When asked by his people, who am I? The Reverend Hickman basically is saying, well, that's the wrong question to ask because the the right question to ask is not, Who am I? But who are we? Who are we? He's saying identity formation happens in the context of community. You know who you are because we know who we are. The you comes from an us. Oh, but that's not at all like how most people in the West conceive of identity formation. We today, we are far less like Reverend Hickman. We are far more like Maria von Trapp. Maria von Trapp, and if you don't know that name, it could be for a number of reasons, but I'd suspect that near the top of the list is because you might be a single male. Yeah. But Maria von Trapp, in the sound of music, God rest Christopher Plummer's soul, he just died last month. But Maria von Trapp, in the movie, is a character, played by Julie Andrews, and she asks her, the head of her convent, the, the nun, the mother abbess, the head nun, she asks the mother abbess, who am I? What am I supposed to do in life? Who am I supposed to be? And the nun, her head nun, answers her back in the form of this song. It's a famous song. She sings the answer, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. Now you see the difference there between Reverend Hickman and the mother abbess, right? Two religious figures, each gives a different take on identity formation. Put into the mouth of the the mother abbess is our modern take on identity formation, which goes like this. 
Not we tell you who you are, but you tell you who you are. You are not your duties, in other words. You are your desires. Your your desires follow every rainbow till you find your dream. So to the questions, who am I? Where do I get my worth? Modern identity formation answers in the words of Miley Cyrus, your worth is based on how you feel about yourself. You tell you, in other words, who you are. Traditional cultures say, we tell you. Modern culture says, only you can tell you. What are we going to do about it? Number two, how does that shape us? How does that change us? How are we shaped by the formation options we see? Because, listen, you know this. You can hope you can see this. We are going to be shaped. Every single person will be shaped by this. The only question is, how? How are we shaped by the options we see? My thesis is going to be this. I'm going to explore it. Both traditional and modern identity formation are uniquely crushing for people. Certainly positive to each, but they're ultimately crushing in a lot of ways for people. I want to look at each in turn. Now, we'll start with traditional culture because that's a lot easier, I think, for a lot of us to see. Traditional cultural formation can crush you by forcing you, for example into a job that you hate, as in your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents were farmers, cobblers, bakers, so you are going to be a farmer, a cobbler, or a baker. No matter what your innate talents are, no matter what your abilities, you're a part of this family, and therefore you are going to be, for example, a cobbler for a lifetime. But what if I hate shoes? Dad, you know, what if I, what if I don't like the work? What if I can't do the work? Well, son, you're a part of this family. You're a cobbler. Can you see in that culture, if you couldn't do that, if you wouldn't deny yourself for the sake of others, you're a failure, not just to your culture, but to your your family. So you deny yourself for the family's honor. You are your duties. Second, traditional cultures, historically, can tend toward the oppression of women. Because what roles did women have to play? Their options were very, very limited. And third, in traditional cultures, there's very little social mobility basically stuck. Oh, but I'd like to make the case along with, as you're going to see, a chorus of non-Christians today that our contemporary individualistic approach to identity formation is not sustainable either. Again, it's easy for us in a modern Western culture like the, like the U.S. In a, in a city like Austin, Texas, to look over into a, tradi- a highly traditional culture and be judgmental, to be moralistic. Two of the things that Western culture says we shouldn't be, but yet we are. Anyway, but we look over at those cultures and say, oh, those are awful. Look at how regressive they are. Oh, but what if? What if we today looked back into our culture from the other side? What if you look into some culture, say, somewhere, some nation, some place where drug abuse, where depression, where suicide rates were all skyrocketing? Would you look at that culture, a place where substance abuse, addiction, depression, and suicide, especially among young people, were all rampant? And would you say that culture is free? Huh? Would you say that the way that that culture forms, especially young people, is healthy? Huh? Or would you say that culture, it sure looks like it's oppressing people somehow just in a different way. I think, I think you would say that. I think you should say that because that would be true. Writer for the Atlantic magazine, David Brooks. David Brooks is not a Christian. He wrote a little article recently called America is having a moral convulsion. And he summed up all of this 
like this. He said, quote, people today live in what the late sociologist Zygmunt Bauman called liquid modernity. All the traits that were once assigned to you by your community, you must now determine on your own. Your identity, your morality, your gender, your vocation, your purpose, and the place of your belonging. Self-creation becomes a major anxiety-producing act of young adulthood. And of course, he's right. Our, our liquid modernity isn't any better. Self-creation is incredibly anxiety-producing. It warps us. It can crush us. And let me show you how two ways now that the self-creation or liquid modernity can warp us. It can warp us first in, with respect to our work. A man by the name of Benjamin Nugent. He, he's a writer, author of short story fiction, and most famously for a while there was dating Mindy Kaling from The Office and was a character on the show. But Benjamin Nugent talked about the enormous pressure we all feel to be someone through our work and what that does to us. He said, quote, when good writing was my only goal, my only goal, I made the quality of my writing the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell if something was good or bad because I needed for it to be good in order for me to be sane, for me to be sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written or to see what was actually on the page. I could only see what I wanted to see or feared to see. You see what he's saying there? He's saying when writing, his work was his identity. He couldn't just write for the sake of writing. He could only write, did you catch this? For the sake of himself. Sake of himself. His writing, his work was all about him. Why? Because he was creating a self. Because that's what modern identity formation makes us do. That's what it made him do. And the same, of course, is, is true of us in modern identity formation which makes you make life all about you. To paraphrase Will Smith, if you're a success, it'll go to your head. But if you're a failure, it'll go to your heart. Go to your heart. If you're a success, you feel amazing because you've, you've managed to climb every mountain and ford every stream. But if you don't succeed, you're now a nothing, a nobody, a no one. Why? Because modern identity formation makes us make everything about us. And not just our work, but also our relationships, our love, love, love. In traditional cultures, where, where, where you, for example, you primarily got married for security or to advance your family's interests. In modern cultures, many of us, maybe most of us, want to fall in love and get married because of what it says about us. Ernest Becker was a secular Jew. He wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book, a research book about American culture called The Denial of Death. And he was asked and asking, how do we live in a world without God? And his answer was, well, we still need an identity. And one of the ways we do this as a culture is to make love, sex, romance, the very center of who we are. Meaning of life. He said, quote, we still need to feel that our life matters in the scheme of things. If God's gone, we still want to merge ourselves with some higher self-absorbing meaning. But if we no longer have God, how are we to do this? And one of the first ways that occurred to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification we need in our innermost being that formerly came from God, we now look for in the love partner. What is it we look for when we elevate the love partner to this position? 
We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption. Nothing less. Concludes like this. No human being can bear the burden of Godhead. Oh, but we still try to make people bear that burden, don't we? We do. How many, for example, love songs have we written about bearing that burden? How many songs do we sing about that kind of attempt making someone bear the burden of Godhead? Because if you'll notice, we don't sing songs like this. And I composed this little ditty this last week for just such an occasion. We don't sing stuff like this. I feel like I won a huge bet. My family line was threatened before we met. Where have you been all my life? I needed children. So first, a husband or wife. No, we don't sing, you know, that'll, forgive me for that if you will, but we don't sing stuff like that. We sing stuff like this. From when I was a kid, from the band Chicago. This is what we sing. We sing, you should know everywhere I go, always in my mind, in my heart, in my soul, baby. You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You bring meaning to my life. You're the inspiration. I want to have you near me. I want to have you hear me saying, no one needs you more than I need you. Or if you prefer prefer a second example, a little more recent, Ariana Grande. You're my everything. This is a song she wrote and sang. He wasn't my everything till we were nothing. Now, I don't know what that line means, but it sounds awesome. But it's taken me a lot to say, now that he's gone, my heart is missing something. So it's time I push my pride away. Because you are, you are, you are my everything. You are, you are, you are my everything. And of course, it's a little humorous, but you know, there's always a tendency to talk like this, over communicate emotion when you're in love. But when you see this over and over, these kind of statements, could there possibly be something else going on at a deeper level? I think there is, because when something becomes your meaning, your everything, when something becomes your very inspiration and reason for living, what is that called? Oh, that is what Christians have always called worship. Worship. When Ben Nugent says, I've got to have my my writing to be good for me to be sane. When Ariana Grande sings, you're my everything. Another verse, she says, if you're not here with me, I can't bear life. That, that's a kind of worship. Therefore, in modern culture, we shouldn't ask as much, who am I? We should really be asking, whose am I? Whose am I? Because inevitably in modern culture, because you're forced to either look out into the world or look down in deep inside and decide who you are, inevitably then, you're a slave to that thing, that impulse, that desire. If traditional cultures are smothering, Our modern culture is exhausting. How can we escape? Well, you may be saying, well, he's about to tell me, just obey God. Just obey God. But I'm going to tell you, that wouldn't quite get at it. Because as we're going to see, sometimes those who just, quote, obey God, who come from a culture or a home where you were taught, just obey God, they can use that obedience. That moral effort is not only a means of forming an identity, but of using that identity as a means of oppressing others. How can we escape? How can we escape? Not just faith in God in general, but number three, Christian faith, Christian identity in specific. How is Christian identity distinct? 
Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, a parable Jesus told. It says, and he, Jesus, also told this parable, look, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And I hope you'll see here right from the beginning how contemporary this teaching is, how modern this parable is. Why? Because Jesus was telling people, talking about people in his day who were trusting in their own efforts, their own heroic moral accomplishments to become somebody and using that as a means of looking down on others. He tells the parable, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's meet these two individuals in turn. First, today, you know, they've got sort of a bad name, but in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were seen as reformers, uh, paragons of virtue, like keepers of the moral flame of Jewish culture. In other words, when Jesus began to teach this parable, the Pharisee would have been seen as the good guy, the hero, but the Pharisees had taken something good, morality, and had begun to use it in a way that God had never intended, which was a means of self-salvation. The Pharisee stood, look at this, and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. You'll notice here all of the classic marks, or at least three of the classic marks in which, uh, the ways in which traditional cultural formation can turn us into oppressors. Here you'll see his moral superiority, right? Like his behavior is good, while others is bad. You see, second, a level of cultural superiority. It says he was praying, who? To himself. In other words, he separated himself from everyone else because if everyone else are the dirty people, the unclean people, then staying away from them, not praying with them. Well, that's the best way to make sure you stay apart of the good people. And you can see the religious superiority. He sneaks here into his list. He says, I, a lot of eyes in this, right? I fast twice a week. Well, that's great, pal, but that's not something that was prescribed by the law of Moses. But look at this, verse 13, second character. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. Now tax collectors, even today, they're certainly not thought of as like the life of the party. But in Jesus' day, they weren't just unpopular. They were actually hated deeply because the Romans, oh, the Romans had this ingenious way of extracting taxes from the nations that they conquered. They would hire a local, a native, who understood the local culture, and the Romans would pay that person a whole lot of money to collect exorbitant taxes from the conquered people to support and fund the large central Roman government. In other words, tax collectors were a lot like modern Western people in that they rejected the message from the traditional culture of their day, like honor your family, honor your culture, put your community first. No, they looked out for themselves first and said, I want to be that. I want to be rich. I want to be wealthy. And they turned their culture into a platform for personal prosperity, no matter the cost. Can you see the contrast here? One man, though it appears he's winning his culture's game, is really losing. And the other, though it looks like he's losing, is about to win. Look what Jesus says. But that tax collector was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, and prayed this, God, be merciful to me, 
the sinner. And Jesus says this, verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow, how could this happen? Oh, it could happen because of this one word the tax collector prays. This one word is the word around which Christian identity formation is formed. It's the word mercy. It's the word mercy. And the reason I say this is because this word mercy here has a specific meaning here, which is sort of lost to us in translation. But this word would have shocked Jesus' hears because it's not the Greek word, typical Greek word for pity, the word eleo, which means pity or help or aid. No, when this tax collector prays, he uses this word. It's the word helaskamai. Helaskamai, it means propitiation. It means substitution. He says, God, have helaskamai on me. He's crying out, God, make substitution for me. Make atonement for me. I need a substitute. See, he's not asking here for God's partnership, like, God, could you throw a guy a bone? He's not asking for God's pity here, like, would you feel sorry for me? No, he's asking for God's propitiation. What's that? In Jewish culture, the high priest who was allowed to enter a place in the Jewish temple called the Holy of Holies. In that place was the Ark of the Covenant. something that you may have seen a movie about once upon a time. That Ark contained the Ten Commandments, God's perfect law. And one time a year only, only the holiest man on the holiest day could go in with the blood of a spotless lamb. And the blood of the lamb would be sprinkled on top of the ark as a way to show that the people's law-breaking and sin and cruelty and evil and injustice, they were all covered by the blood of the substitute. And God, looking from heaven, would look on the blood of the substitute sprinkled on a part of the ark called the mercy seat, the seat of Halaskamai, and God would forgive that sin. In other words, the tax collector is praying, pleading, asking, saying, God, what happens on that mercy seat needs to happen in my heart. What happens on the mercy seat needs to happen in my heart. I need a substitute. I need an exchange to happen. And it can. How? Only way to understand this is by looking at the only other place in the New Testament where that word is used. And it's over in Hebrews chapter 2. Where the writer, speaking of Jesus himself, says this. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That he might make, here it is, atonement. Alaskamai. For the sins of the people. What does this mean? It means that Jesus on that Roman cross, as he was crucified and hung dying, he became this sinner's prayer, this tax collector's prayer, not just a sinner. Jesus became the sinner for all of us, for all who will cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What happens at that moment? Oh, Christianity says what happens is what Jesus said happens to that man that you exchange identities. What happened to this man, the tax collector? Jesus said that he walked away. What? Justified, approved, righteous, accepted. He wasn't looking outside anymore to his culture to help him determine who he was. He wasn't looking inside. It was follow his own heart to follow his own star. No, he was asking for an exchange. And Jesus said, this one walks away approved. 
He received the approval of God over the approval of his culture. And let me tell you what this receiving this does to us now. Christian identity, one built on what Jesus has done for us, gives us a steadying identity. One that doesn't go up and down based on whether or not we've got some romantic partner or we've got a a huge platform or, or a million likes or if that person in our office likes us or that that guy in our team or our school is nice to us and and christian identity gives us a non-oppressive identity every other identity formation type has this problem when you're living up to whatever that culture says or what you say about yourself you feel great about you like this pharisee you turn that into feelings of superiority and contempt for others and contemporary modern moral culture warriors today they do this they fight tooth and nail against the evil liberals but they just become part of the problem like those in that crowd they view others with contempt oh but modern secular liberal people do this as well they look down on others who aren't as modern who aren't as non-oppressive as they believe they are listen it's one thing to condemn an evil in the world it's another to trust that you in and of yourself are righteous for doing so and then to go on like jesus said to look on other down on others with contempt when you think your side are the good ones you will inherently you have to view others with contempt feel superior and when you're not living up to what your culture says you can feel crushed oh but when you have at the very core of you what jesus has done for you you receive his mercy on you and what happened on that mercy seat happens on your heart when you receive his approval now this levels you out emotionally culturally relationally with others If you will ground your identity, that is, if you will make the stable core of you, the thing that's the same about you wherever you go, the thing that the historic global church has always said you need, which is your identity in Jesus, the sinner, a sinner saved by grace. You can escape the oppression any culture will put on people. And when you move out into the world to try to undo that oppression, oh, you won't put that oppression on others. Now, does all of this prove God exists? No, no, but for a moment, consider this. Last thought. Consider that Christianity today is the most, by far, culturally diverse faith system in the world. 88, almost 90% of Muslims live in the Middle East, where Islam began, or in Africa or South Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India, where Hinduism began. 88, almost 90% of Buddhists live in East Asia. Oh, but by contrast, 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% of Christians live in Central and South America. 22% and growing rapidly live in Africa. 15% and growing live in Asia. And 12 to 15% only live in North America. Why has Christianity demonstrated such cultural diversity? Here's why. It's because the identity at the heart of the Christian faith is not one based on any one culture, any one cultural practice, any one language. It's not based on keeping the rules or expressing the self on either family duty or on personal desire. And when you see that, wouldn't that be at least a kind of a clue that Christianity was not the product of any one culture, but was a supernatural gift that's come from the outside in to help us escape the ways in which every culture tends to oppress its people? Yeah, I think it is. And I want to tell you, 
you can have that kind of freedom, that kind of, to use Jesus' word, exaltation, the lifting up of the person to the mercy that Jesus offers you today. You can have that right now. I want to pray for you. Take just a moment, church, as we begin to close and pray for all of us watching. If you need that, that kind of approval, that exchange to release you from the ways in which you feel today. Oh, you're crushed. You're anxious, depressed. I want to tell you, you can have that right now. Lord, I'm just coming to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this. Lord, it begins with our acknowledging what you've done for us. Lord, you became you were not so that we could become in a way who and what you are lifted exalted the just the righteous the approved the received ones out of our place in our culture into the heavenly court where only one opinion matters that of almighty god lord i pray today that that voice would resonate above every other voice. That voice would sink so deeply inside us, form us, shape us, that in you, Jesus, in you, Jesus, because of who you are, we can become something the world's never seen and we can give it away to others. Lord, I pray for strong encouragement for those who are discouraged today, those whose heads are bowed, that would have their heads lifted, Psalm 3 says, because of the mercy, the mercy, of Jesus of Nazareth. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.